The information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is not to be taken as financial or personal advice. It does not consider your objectives, financial situation or needs. You should consider whether this information is suitable for you and your personal circumstances before acting on it. Hi, and welcome to The Home Run, your guide to buying your first home in Australia. On this show, I'll walk you through the home buying process from every angle. We cover the steps to take, the pitfalls to avoid, and the answers to all your questions you've been dying to ask. No matter what stage you're at, you'll learn everything you need to know about buying your first home. I'm your host, Michael Nasser, and I'm a mortgage broker at Lens Street, and I really love helping people buy their first home. Thanks for joining me for the third and final part of our deep dive on all legal terms that you might come across when buying your first home. Once again, I'm joined by Janice Padovani, the principal at JB Property Lawyers. In today's episode, Janice breaks down everything you need to know about due diligence. I ask about some of the hidden benefits of a pest and building report. And Janice shares her top three tips for first home buyers. All right, let's get into it. community title? It sort of sits between conventional methods of subdivision and strata subdivision. So it enables the creation of shared property on the subdivided land and shared use of common facilities. So if you think of a strata scheme as being a vertical community, and then you think about community title scheme as a horizontal community. So you see it a lot in Sydney suburbs of Breakfast Point, Liberty Grove, Wentworth Point, where there might be shared facilities like a gym or a swimming pool, and that's often community titled land. So there might be houses that are quite independent, but they have the shared use of a gym or a pool, and they usually are built in estates. They're typically community title properties. So in that instance, would you have in strata and community title as one? Do they sit concurrently? Yeah, they can sometimes overlap. Okay. So in Breakfast Point, for example, you can see the two working together. Okay, cool. Now looking at different ways that potentially you can purchase, the two main ones that we would see more often than not are joint tenants and tenants in common. What's a joint tenant and what makes it different to tenants in common and what are tenants in common? Okay, so joint tenants means when there's two purchasers and you're purchasing the property in equal shares and that if one party were to pass away, then the deceased person's share automatically goes to the surviving party. So typically married couples purchase in this way, especially if the property is going to be their principal place of residence. So when you buy as tenants in common, that could mean that you're either purchasing the property equally, so 50-50, or it could be in different proportions like 60-40, but in any case, it's going to add up to 100 However, the main difference is that on death of a registered proprietor, then the deceased person's share goes to the beneficiary under their will, who isn't necessarily the surviving party. So typically people purchase as tenants in common if maybe it's their second marriage, there are children, it's a blended family, and they're just trying to protect their estate so that their share will go to the beneficiary under their will as opposed to the surviving party. What if say you're a first home buyer and you're going to buy a property with a friend or like a sibling, like a brother or a sister, would you say that there is a positive to be tenants in common as opposed to joint tenants? Or do you see that that makes a difference? Yeah, absolutely. If you're a first home buyer buying with a friend, you absolutely should purchase as tenants in common. 
If you're buying with a sibling, even still, I would recommend buying as tenants in common, but there's more of an argument to purchase as joint tenants if you're siblings. But if you're friends, 100% tenants in common would be the most logical way to go. Okay. A survey. Okay. So a survey, it's not a requirement that a survey be annexed to a contract for sale. But if there is a survey annexed to a contract, it is helpful because it basically depicts the boundaries and the dimensions of the land. And it also might depict whether there are easements or covenants or restrictions, but basically it's really helpful in ascertaining the boundaries. All right. So making sure that you're buying the actual block that you're actually buying, setting up the boundaries and understanding what they are. They're not provided in the contract for sale. It's not a legal requirement that a survey be provided, but that doesn't stop you from contracting one yourself if you really wanted to. In an ideal world, that's what you would do, but it costs money to do that. There is a deposited plan in a contract if you were buying a house. Survey is less important when you're buying a unit. I'm talking primarily when you're buying a house, but the deposited plan is a basic sketch. It doesn't really depict the boundaries. All right. And I guess these are coming to now the reports that we might be doing as part of our due diligence in a purchase that a solicitor obviously or a conveyancer will assist you with generally or advise you on as part of that due diligence process. And the next one would be your pest and building report. So what are they? And they're probably the most common, I'd imagine, due diligence documents that you'd be getting. Yeah. And they're so important. Pest and building reports, whether you're buying a unit or a house, I always recommend that you obtain a pest and building report. The reason being, it's basically a written account of a property's condition. And I would always recommend that you get a licensed builder to do it. And it includes information about significant defects, problems such as rising damp, movement in walls, cracking, safety hazards, or a faulty roof. And it's usually carried out, like it forms part of your due diligence. So you should either do it before you exchange contracts or during the cooling off period. But it's really important that you get a pest and building report done. And I would imagine you have some examples of people that have conducted one and have actually then pulled out of a purchase or been interested in a property, conducted this and then said, well, based on this, we're no longer interested. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I do experience that from time to time. It can turn a purchaser off because they realize that they're going to have to spend significant more money to rectify issues. But in saying that, I have in the past used a pest and building report to try to negotiate a price reduction for a purchaser. So it might actually save you money in the long term by getting the pest and building report done. Yeah, I think like anything with all of these items, what it does, it just makes you knowledgeable as to what you're getting yourself into. And that at the very least should give you comfort because you know, and the ultimate aim would be that it comes back fine and you know that, okay, that's all good. But It's that moment where you find something out after you purchase that you're trying to avoid and go, oh God, what have I done here? Or what's happened here? And now I'm up for 50 grand to fix this up, which I would have picked up on before. And so it's all about equipping yourself with that knowledge before you you get into it. And the other thing to note is sometimes agents provide a link for you to download a pest and building reports. You pay X amount of money and it's usually much cheaper than commissioning one yourself. And what I would say to that is beware of that because you would question whether a report is biased or whether it's independent enough to be considered as fair. So I always suggest using someone independent to carry out a pest and building report. Yeah, they're selling the house. Obviously, there is a slight conflict of interest there if they're providing you a link to 
a building and pest that they've done and they're also the ones selling the property. It's not to say anything about any of the companies providing it, but it's more or less just look at it naturally and what do you think? And I, and I totally agree. Getting someone independent, you can be sure in that instance that they're going to be giving you what you need to hear and nothing else. Another type of report that would be done only in certain instances and mainly, I guess, units and apartments and townhouses is a strata report. What's a strata report and what details are in it that a first home buyer should be mindful of? Yeah, right. So where a pest and building report is prepared by a licensed builder, a strata report is prepared by a strata inspector. And that report details the actual and expected financial liabilities of the owner's corporation. So it's important to know whether there are any special levies or proposed special levies. And the strata report is also really important because it outlines any disharmonies among the other owners in the building, any litigation against builders or tradespeople for defects, as well as anything else that's peculiar about the property or the bylaws. So the report sets out minutes of meetings, and I think it gives you a really good feel for how the owner's corporation is run. And I think it's important because when you buy into a unit or, or into a strata complex or strata title property, you're not just buying your place, you're buying the people that are around you too in some ways because they will be able to determine what you can and can't do in the future. And it's a joint decision. And so to understand a bit of that dynamics before you walk in might you know, pivot your decision-making depending on what you see in that report. So it's another way to enable yourself to understand what you're getting yourself into as much as you possibly can and making sure that's okay with you. I also know, is it a sinking fund or there's another type of item there with regards to the costs that allocated for repairs and things like that? Is that something that someone should be mindful of? Yeah, so the sinking fund is more commonly referred to as the capital works fund and that's the fund that they use if repairs or maintenance are required to be undertaken. So it's really hard for a solicitor and they probably shouldn't be commenting whether there are significant funds in those accounts because we're lawyers, we're not accountants. But if you saw quite clearly that the fund was in deficit, then that lends itself to the fact that there's a good possibility that a special levy will be raised in future. And what's a special levy when it comes to strata property? So a special levy is what you pay in addition to strata levies to able to raise funds to achieve a certain outcome. For example, if the building needed to be painted and it was really important that the building was painted because the paint was all cracking, then the owner's corporation might have the owner's vote on whether that outcome should be achieved and how much it would cost. And if the owners voted in its favour, then the owner's corporation would raise a special levy so they'd get quotes and determine what an appropriate special levy should be raised. And then usually what happens is the special levy is allocated to the unit holders based on their unit entitlement, and then it's paid in instalments. So each quarter, in addition to paying the strata levies, you'd also pay X amount to cover special levy for X amount of time. Yeah. And that's a pretty big financial commitment to be aware of if that's going to potentially play out. And I think what you're looking to is to the amount within it. And obviously, if there's more in it, that's probably a better thing than if there's less in it. And then obviously, if it's in a deficit, it might raise some concern that you might need to consider. I've seen an example of this recently with a client that I've worked with in the past, and they told me about it, where they purchased a unit. They've obviously got their strata fees that they pay every quarter, but the building didn't have Foxtel. 
And so they all wanted Foxtel and I think it was a complex of 18 or thereabouts. And so they got together and they determined that they wanted to get Foxtel installed into all the units. And so that cost $7,000. And so they divided that $7,000 amongst each other. And then they raised that as a special fee to basically pay for it. So I guess that would be a good explanation as to when a special levy might be raised or how that could be done or why it would be done. So we're moving along nicely here. So the next thing is a building certificate. So what's that? So a building certificate is a document issued by council and it's relating to existing work. So it's usually requested by a purchaser before settlement to make sure what is being bought is not going to be subject to an action by council. So for example, if a purchaser suspects that the vendor hasn't obtained the necessary approvals to make an alteration or addition to the property, purchaser might request a building certificate or they might go to council directly and try to obtain one themselves. And what that building certificate says is that council won't take any action for a certain period of time or take any proceedings or order that that particular alteration or addition, if it wasn't approved, be demolished. So it's basically giving the purchaser some sort of assurance that even though a change made to the property wasn't done with approval, that council aren't going to take any further action. And is that a standard thing in a contract or do you seek this on top of? It's not a standard certificate to be provided by a vendor. In fact, it's actually quite rare that we see them. However, the issue still does come up from time to time and you would typically see special conditions in a contract stating that the vendor isn't required to obtain a building certificate. But typically it comes to light with properties where the purchasers obtained, purchasers undertaken renovations themselves and whether there is a question as to whether those renovations were approved by council. Okay. Homeowners insurance documents, and I think these would refer to new builds, is that correct? Not necessarily. So you typically get homeowners warranty insurance where you're going to make some changes to a property or build a property where the contract value is over 20000 So if you were buying a new property, you would expect to see annexed to the contract homeowner's warranty insurance. But if you were buying a property that was three years old and someone owned it before you, then the benefit of that insurance would be passed on to you. So it depends how you define you. Like it's a safety net for homeowners. It basically provides purchasers or subsequent purchasers with compensation if they experience any financial loss because of a builder becoming insolvent or dying or disappearing or having their license suspended. And the cover can be claimed for six years from the date of the job for major defects or two years from the date of job completion for general defects. So if you buy a property that's four years old, then you might still obtain the benefit of that homeowner's warranty insurance. Okay. You said you might. Is there a possibility that you can't? There's a possibility that you can't in that you might be forced to go through fair trading and mediate at first with the builder before it gets to the point of making a claim with insurance. Bylaws, we have mentioned these and I guess these relate to strata scenarios and units and townhouses and the like. So what's a bylaw? So when you buy a strata unit and you will see bylaws next to the contract, we basically outline the rules for living in the unit block. So rules that you might must follow, like approval might be required for keeping a pet. 
There might be rules about where you can hang your washing, which typically don't allow you to hang washing on balconies. There might be rules about smoking, that you can't smoke on balconies or that you can't rent out your property short-term manner like through Airbnb. So it's really important that your vendor reviews the bylaws and points out anything to you that could concern you. But it's also important that you have a read of them yourself because you're the person that has to abide by them living in the strata complex. And that strata report that we discussed earlier would have the bylaws contained in that or is it something separate you need to seek? Typically, a strata report does include the bylaws, but bylaws are considered as a prescribed document. So they should also be annexed to the contract for sale. Okay, got it. So if you're buying something as a unit or a townhouse, they should be part of the contract for you to be able to refuse Absolutely. with or without the strata report being done. Yes. Okay. Some other items, I guess, that we see crop up in contracts of sale and obviously when we're purchasing fixtures and fittings, I guess, what are the differences between the two and how do they apply? Okay. So fixtures are considered to be part of the property. So other than the structure of the house, they are the parts of the house that have these items attached to it, like a bath or a shower. So you can't take those items away without causing considerable damage. So they are considered as a fixture. So we don't even address those items in a contract for sale because it's a given that you're going to be getting those items when you purchase property. So if we compare that to fitting or an inclusion, so they are those items which are not permanently attached to the property and could be easily taken away. So for example, blinds or curtains or a clothesline. So it's really important that check the contract of sale to work out what items are included because a vendor very well can decide to take away a really beautiful light fitting if it isn't listed as an inclusion in the contract for sale. So I guess that there are items that are contained within the building. Some are given that you're getting them. Some are a little bit more ambiguous as to whether you are, such as a blind or a light fitting. And I guess the way that you can manage what's there. So I guess you're going to be looking through a property before you purchase it, you inspect it through the open house or whatever that may be. And you've probably got this expectation that certain things are going to be there. And the way that you can ensure that they are there or to know if they're not there is via, I guess, inclusions and exclusions. And I guess yes. if we can get a bit of a breakdown as to what are inclusions and what exclusions. So inclusions, like I said, they're things like the blinds and curtains that you can take away, but a vendor has to specifically state whether they included because they are easy for a vendor to take those items away. Whereas exclusions, inclusions and exclusions could both be classed as fittings. So if there's a particular item noted as an exclusion, and if you thought it should be an inclusion, then you should tell your solicitor or conveyancer because then you might be able to negotiate whether the exclusion could be noted as an inclusion. Yeah. I think I've seen something like this again recently where someone purchased a property and there was a blind in one particular room. That was an exclusion. It wasn't going to be included in the sale. And it's because this blind was made or sewn by the vendor's mother. And so it was sentimental to them. So they've included, well, they've mentioned in the contract that that is to be taken away and that won't be included, obviously an exclusion. And I guess the thing that I see is if there's something that you do like, just make sure that if you're adamant and you love it, that it's in there as an inclusion and not yeah. as an exclusion, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Because sometimes these items can fall into grey areas. Yeah. And like for a vendor, if there's an item that could confuse a purchaser, then they should really take it away, not have it when you're at the property, it. when the property is being inspected. But yeah. 
it's also important just to give thought to this because when you do a final inspection, you could get a rude shock if you were anticipating something to be there and it's been taken away. Yeah. Well, and I guess that leads into the next item of discussion, which is the final inspection. So this is obviously now at the later stages of the buying process. What's the final inspection and what sort of things should a buyer be looking at at this point? Okay. So a final inspection is where you would, as a purchaser, make an appointment with the agent to attend the property prior to settlement taking place. And you would basically be wanting to inspect the property to ensure that it's in the same state and condition as when you initially inspected the property. So basically, you want to check that the vendor hasn't damaged the property when moving out and that they haven't changed the property in any way between exchange and settlement. So if something doesn't work at the final inspection, like for example, if you figure out the dishwasher's not working and that's noted as an inclusion, then there's not really a lot you can do because there is a lot of buyer beware. However, it's still worth raising it with your solicitor or conveyancer because sometimes these things can be negotiated. You're about to take possession of the property and it allows you one last chance to look at it and make sure it is as it is uh, when you first saw it. I guess you've touched on the point as to what happens if sometimes things aren't exactly the same. And I guess that's a whole Pandora's box potentially. And for our purposes, it's not to delve into that at this stage. It's just to basically explain what it is. And we might be able to discuss that later on as to what to do if certain things aren't there. But I guess it's just more of a legal scenario and a legal process that would take place in that instance. And then you've mentioned it as well, settlement also referred to as completion. So what's settlement and how does that work in this process? Okay, so settlement usually takes place six weeks after contracts are exchanged, but it could be longer or shorter depending on what has been agreed in the contract. And it's the process of paying the remaining sale price. So you've paid your deposit, whether it was 5 or 10%, and then you're paying the balance of the sale price to the vendor. Plus, we make adjustments for things like council rates, water rates, strata levies if the property is strata titled. and once we make those adjustments, we can determine the approximate amount that you owe to the vendor, and then you would pay it on settlement. So when we settle matters, we actually use a digital platform called PEXA, and that stands for Property Exchange Australia. And we do our settlements electronically now. So gone are the days where you would go and get bank checks and give them to your solicitor or conveyancer, and then they would go into the city or their settlement agent and we do a physical exchange of checks and documents. Now everything is done electronically via PEXA. So your solicitor would be trained in using PEXA. And then ultimately the banks are all in there, all the legal representatives are there, and we were able to prepare documents and sign them off. And then funds are provided via PEXA because the banks are in there so they can upload source funds and then solicitors use their trust account to upload funds, and then a system takes place which effectively enables settlement to occur, which makes the purchaser the legal owner of the property. Okay. And it's, so it's essentially a conclusion of it all. You mentioned PEXA, which is a term that we were going to discuss, and so it's good that we've mentioned that as it being the online, I guess it's like Zoom for the purposes of the interested parties in a sales transaction to complete it and do what they need to do. And it does also indicate finalization of the process once settlement's been completed, as you've mentioned, in terms of what items are conducted in that particular online meeting by PEXA, it is effectively complete. And then 
for the purchaser that enables them to go to the agent later on that day and pick up the keys and have access to the property and use it as theirs. And obviously for the vendor who's selling the property, they get all the funds that they are owed for the purchase and then they move on to them happy and merry That's way right. Well. And that explains why it goes back to why there are no physical certificates yeah. of title. Well, that's because we settle matters electronically now. So there's not even an opportunity to hand over a physical certificate. Well, of I title. imagine settlement used to be a face-to-face interaction before it was online. So you'd have to meet somewhere and go and do all this physically and hand things over. Whereas with PEXA, it's all electronic as much all of the world electronic. is. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I guess to wrap it up, what I like to do is ask for three tips that you'd have for first home buyers. And this doesn't have to necessarily be related to legal terms or anything like that, but just in your experience dealing with a lot of first home buyers, as I know that you do, what tips would you have for them as take homes? Yeah. So I think the most important thing is to get your loan pre approval before you do anything. If you can't afford to purchase a certain property, there's no point in even looking because if you enter into a contract without having an idea of what your lending capacity in, you could find yourself in a really serious financial situation. So I would say that is the most important to do and see an experienced mortgage broker and that forms part of your due diligence. So pest and building reports, don't be afraid to spend money up front by completing your due diligence. So loan pre-approval, pest and building report, strata report, make those inquiries with council, make inquiries with architects if you plan on making renovations and find a good solicitor or conveyancer who can guide you through the process of conveyancing. Yeah, I think you need to have that sort of what people can refer to from time to time as their A-team in order to fulfil this journey. So you've touched on it there really, really nicely. Before we wrap up, if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, obviously you've been extremely insightful and you've provided us with so much information. And so if anyone wants to sort of speak to you or ask you certain questions, or maybe if they've got, you know, probably they're looking that they need conveyancing or some advice on, what's the best way that they can get in touch with you? Yeah, the best way to contact me is just to give me a call, my mobile, and my number's 0433-880-254. You can also send me an email. My email address is Janice at jppropertylawyers.com.au. I also have a Facebook page, just search JP Property Lawyers, and I have a website as well. So yeah, you've got the website there at jpproperty.com.au that people can reach out to you too if they require. But all those links will be in the show notes as well. So you'll be able to scroll and find them and click on those if you want to get in touch with Janice. But Janice, thank you so much for your time today. Although perhaps not the most exciting topic to be discussing, the items that we've discussed today are so crucial to a first home buyer understanding and being mindful of, not necessarily all are relevant perhaps to them, but I'm sure there's going to be at least three or four terms in there that they can hear and relate to and be mindful of so that when they're going through their journey, when they're speaking to their conveyancer, they're going to be a little bit better equipped to really understand a bit more about why that's important at that particular moment and it may prompt them to ask them questions of their particular legal representation in their purchase. So thank you so much. Um, it's really been a joy to talk to you and finding out more about the legal jargon that we so often hear about. You're welcome, Michael. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Home Run, your guide for buying your first home in Australia. This podcast was produced by Lendstreet. Lendstreet is a mortgage broker and home loan specialist that helps first home buyers find the right loan to meet their needs. We know applying for a loan can be overwhelming and complex, so we help guide and support first home buyers through the process from start to finish. To find out more, head to our website, lendstreet.com.au. We've also put a link in the show notes.
To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Home Run, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Michael Nasser, and we'll be back next episode covering another step on the journey to owning your first home.